seriously popular. Have you ever felt like escaping to your own desert island? Jane Gaskin did exactly that, trading in the family home to begin a new life in the tropics. But she soon discovers that paradise has its secrets. I'm Alice Levine, and this is The Price of Paradise, the island dream that ends in kidnap, corruption, and murder. Wish you were here? Follow The Price of Paradise now, wherever you listen to podcasts. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. After deliberating for about two and a half hours, 33-year-old Josef Pushka was found guilty of murder, his story not believed by the jury. Judge Justice Tony Hunt, he did say he was glad that they didn't waste any more of their valuable time on Pushka's farcical story. From the team that brought you the trial of Lucy Letby, this is the trial, Ashley Murphy. So, Nicola, we heard there just some of the coverage of yesterday's verdict. Now, for the Murphy family, yesterday marked the end of this awful, awful legal journey for them. They know for sure now that Joseph Pushka murdered Ashlyn on the canal path in January last year. And his defence was so flimsy, at best, that if this case wasn't so tragic, so awful and so senseless, it would have been laughable, to be honest. And in fact, his story that another masked man appeared on the canal bank that day and stabbed him three times in the stomach before then killing Ashlyn was actually called out, wasn't it, by Anne-Marie Lawler as cock and bull, as fantasy and ultimately dismissed by the jury. Yeah, it sure was, Caroline. Uh, Today we'll talk a little bit about Joseph Pushka's lies, not just his lies to the police, but also his lies to the court. And we'll also talk a bit more about some of the defence, what they said, what they tried to get ruled out, you know, before this trial even began proper. In particular, we'll explain a lot about the pre-trial, the legal arguments and what his defence team, led by Michael Bowman, didn't want the jury to hear. We are going to talk you through all of that today and we're also going to find out a little bit more about what the atmosphere was like in Tullamore after Ashlyn's murder. We heard in court quite a lot, didn't we, about this febrile atmosphere in the town. People were angry, they were scared and while we know now that the Gardaí knew fairly quickly that they had their man in the hospital in Dublin, the public didn't know that. Welcome to episode 10, The Killer.
So, Nicola, let's begin today with that atmosphere in Tullamore at the time of Ashlyn's death. We knew from the coverage at the time you were there, you covered this case along with your colleagues and from the evidence that we heard in court that things were heated, people were angry, they were frightened. There was a real sense of people feeling unsafe in the town. And how could this have happened on a canal bank, a busy canal bank, as we explained yesterday, in broad daylight to a woman going about her her daily life. And that was really palpable at the time, wasn't it, Nicola? Yeah, it was, Caroline. I mean, when Ashling was killed and the news of that began to leak out, you know, within minutes, literally, after she died, there was a huge outpouring of grief. But very, very quickly, that grief turned to anger as well. And people really were angry and they were scared as well. And not just in Tullamore, Caroline, I would say they were scared throughout the country, throughout the island of Ireland, because nobody knew where this man was. We should also put it in a broader context, shouldn't we? Because this happened not too long after the murder of Sarah Everard when feelings were running high about the safety of women on the streets. Yes, indeed. And, you know, it it was picked up on by social media very quickly and a hashtag was born. She was just going for a run and people were very angry, men and women, that, you know, this young woman, a vibrant intelligent young woman who was loved by her community couldn't just go for a run, go for exercise without this awful, awful tragedy befalling her. And yeah, people were very angry. We're joined actually today by Debbie McCann. Debbie is the crime correspondent for The Mail in Ireland. And Debbie was there at the time of this and she covered it from day one. So, Debbie, what was the first you heard about the attack in Tullamore? It was very quickly, I guess, on January 12th that news emerged that something terrible had happened along the canal in Tullamore. Um, And very, very quickly, we learned that a a girl had been attacked. Now, details were pretty scarce at the start from memory, but um, it soon became very apparent that something major had happened. And then finally, we got word then that a young woman had been left brutally attacked on the side of the canal, basically. And and Debbie, just to go back to the location that this all happened, um, it's quite a significant location already, isn't it, in Tullamore, for another case um, that's never really been solved. It is, yes. It, there was a, a woman, a local woman, um, many years ago, uh, Fiona Pender, who vanished and was never found again. Um, and the, the, the place where Ashling's body was found uh, very poignantly was named after uh, Fiona. It was called Fiona's Way um, uh, in memory of her um, and the, uh, the case mm-hmm. that went unsolved. Yeah, I think it's fair to say that Fiona's death provoked an outpouring of grief similar, actually, to Ashling Murphy's. And um, locals named this stretch of the Grand Canal after her with agreement from the local council. And it's a place where people go to walk their dogs, to exercise. And there's a little memorial there now, of course, as well for Ashling. There, yeah, there is. And we also have appeals almost every year in relation to Fiona Pender's investigation. Uh, Gardy still looking for information in relation to what happened to Fiona. Um, so it was very, very poignant, I guess, that Ashley was found there. Yeah, I mean, a, a location for two really, really incredibly sad, tragic, you know, events, I suppose. And, you know, just to sort of focus up back on this case and on Ashley and that moment when, 
you know, you get that call as a crime correspondent for the mail. I don't suppose, Debbie, for a minute you could have envisaged what this case was, was going to look like, was going to be at that point. No, but it was very clear that, that something quite significant had happened very quickly. Um, the guard investigation was incredibly fast paced from the get go. Um, once it became apparent that this young woman had been found um, brutally attacked along the canal, the guard investigations, uh, it became a full scale murder investigation almost instantly. Um, uh, there was a team of 50 guardie put on it. There was uh, specialist detectives brought up from Dublin uh, to work on it. So it was there was something very significant mm-hmm. about it from the very start. Um, and journalists, I guess, in Dublin were very quickly dispatched down to the scene um, uh, as it unfolded that afternoon. And then alongside this very fast investigation, there was this huge outpouring of grief, wasn't there, Debbie? There was, almost instantly as well. There was such shock and revulsion at what had happened, um, that something so random um, had happened to such um, a, a, a young woman that I guess many people could see in them just doing, going about daily life like any of us did. Um, she went, she decided to take a run along the canal after work. Um, and it a- ended in such horrific and horrifying kind of circumstances that everybody was just so repulsed by it. And uh, I guess the country went into almost immediate shock as a result of what happened. One man was arrested quite quickly. That was then deemed obviously to not be correct and he was released. And then it was a few more days before Joseph Pushka was arrested. And I wonder, were people frightened? Yeah, there was definitely fear. Um, uh, there was um, much talk of of women being afraid, um, looking over their shoulders, going for their daily walk. Um, there was talk of all of that um, around the country. Um, and this man who had been arrested, he was released. The Guardi were very clear that they had that he had been eliminated from the inquiry. So people knew uh, from then that there was still somebody out there who had uh, carried out this brutal attack. And yeah, uh, that obviously brought about uh, a level of fear um, amongst the public. But I suppose what the public didn't know, but the guardie did know, was that almost immediately that another person of interest came right into the frame and he piqued their interest because he had turned up at St. James's Hospital by ambulance on the 13th of January and he said he was a victim of a stabbing attack in Blanchettstown. But I suppose crucially and perhaps stupidly on his part, he he said that he'd come from Tullamore the mm. previous day. Yeah. And when things didn't add up in relation to um, what Pushka was telling Gardi at the hospital, um, they very quickly became suspicious um, and they rang their colleagues in Tullamore who came immediately to the hospital in St. James's. Um, so, yeah, it was it was it was almost um, in tandem that it happened that the first man was released and almost instantly we had this new man um, in the frame for it. And Debbie, can you talk about the mood in Tullamore at the time? Uh, you know, in the trial, we heard Michael Bowman asked one of the witnesses. He said, tell us what the mood was like in Tullamore. It was ugly, wasn't it? it was. And this man replied, more than that. I, it was scenes I, we have never seen in this country, um, from my memory anyway. Um, uh, it was just such an intense level of anger 
Um, and it was, I guess, because a week had elapsed from the murder. There had been vigils right across the country. Ashling's family had been photographed um, and, and videoed linking arms and talking so poignantly and, and sadly about Ashling. And people felt that they knew Ashling by the time that this man had been brought to court. And that level of anger really kind of um, it, it mirrored that. I've never heard anything like that before either. I mean, you talked about that level of feeling, uh, you know, like, you know, sort of creating a wall and the, the, the van being driven off almost kind of Hollywood style. They were desperate just to get him into that van and get him, get him out of there. This sort of thing doesn't happen in Tullamore very often. It doesn't happen in Dublin very often. It doesn't happen in Ireland very often. We should say something about that, shouldn't we? Yeah, absolutely. The randomness of the attack in relation to Ashling Murphy is something that's very, very unusual um, in Ireland. Uh, 2022, I believe it was the highest femicide figures we've had in this country since 2007. But there's almost no other case that I can think of that's comparable just in relation to that total random nature of it, as you you were describing. Um, And I think that is what incited people to feel such a level of anger and 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 shock and and putting themselves in Ashling's shoes that day. Um, and why people here, women in particular, were looking over their shoulders in the days and weeks and still now um, um, as a result of, of Ashling's murder. Um, it was just something we we don't see very often here at all, um, uh, that, le- that, that random nature of this attack. Um, when women are killed here, it's like anywhere else across the world, it's usually by someone known to them. Um, And in this case, it was just so purely random. And as Nicola was saying, it could so easily have been two other women that very day. Um, And unfortunately, it was it was Ashling um, that that um, whose life was ended. Debbie McCann, thank you so much for, for chatting to us. Really appreciate you coming on. So we also wanted to chat today, Nicola, didn't we, about the legal argument. Now, just to put a bit of context around this, this is what was happening in the days before this trial started. So before the trial started, there was two weeks where the jury were not in court, the barristers were in court and the defendant was in court, but the jury were not in court and they were arguing over some legal issues to the judge And we wanted to bring some of that to you today because we thought it was quite interesting, some of the stuff that was coming out of that legal argument. Now, Nicola, we should explain that we're not allowed to discuss this generally because the jury were not in for this legal argument. So what they don't know, we're not allowed to say while this trial is going on. But now it's finished and we have a conviction, we can now talk a little bit freer about what was happening in the days before the jury came into court and this trial started properly. And quite a lot of that was about, was from his defence barrister, Michael Bowman. Um, and quite a lot of it, Nicola, was about Joseph Pushka's rights and, and his rights possibly being infringed, particularly by the CCTV evidence in this case. Do you want to just walk us through just how important that was, how much of it there was, and what they were trying to say in terms of getting it thrown out? 
Yeah, so we know now, of course, that Joseph Pushka was following at least two other women on the day that he killed Ashling, And we know that, Caroline, because we've seen him on the CCTV doing just that. But actually, his defence team, led by Michael Bowman, as we said, tried to get that CCTV ruled out. He tentatively raised the possibility of privacy violations with the CCTV. Now, Judge Justice Tony Hunt just absolutely um, threw this out. He said he wasn't going to entertain it at all. He said, is there anywhere within the EU which doesn't allow its criminal courts to access CCTV? He said it's a nonsense. He said, you can stop this, Mr. Bowman. It's not going anywhere. He was going down the street in the middle of the day. And he actually said, have you fallen through the looking glass, Mr. Bowman? He said it was that ridiculous. One of Tony Hunt's many uh, key phrases and key memorable phrases from this trial, I think that would have been the looking glass one. And there were many others, actually, weren't there? Because he's, he's, he's a sort of really interesting talker, Tony Hunt. Yes, he is indeed. And there was a lot of verbal uh, toing and froing between him and Michael Bowman. Um, when Michael Bowman um, was going to introduce a medical expert, which he actually did introduce in the trial, Dr. Johan Grundling, Tony Hunt said, what is an expert? He's just some fella from out of town, as Mark Twain would have said. So that was one of his wittier reposts. Yeah, I mean, and on that, on that footage that you talked about that Bowman, Michael Bowman tried to get thrown out, we should say, we have mentioned that it's 25,000 hours of CCTV footage that the officers uh, and the detectives went through in this case. Now, this isn't just, you know, police CCTV or CCTV on transport system. This was everyone's CCTV. I think you described it as the whole shebang. This was people's doorbells, people having CCTV on their homes, people having CCTV on their shops, on their restaurants. This is everything that was covering the town. And that on the few days that I was in the court for the legal argument, that was the point that Michael Bowman was making, that Joseph Pushka wouldn't know he was being captured on CCTV because he wouldn't know that people's doorbells or their own private CCTV was picking him up. And that was where that they were arguing this privacy point, that his privacy had been invaded because he was being picked up on CCTV that he couldn't possibly know about. Yeah, it was an extraordinary contention, really. Two Gardaí uh, were assigned to look at CCTV in and around Tullamore on the day of the murder, but also on preceding days and proceeding days. And, and you know, they looked at everything, just as you said there. They looked at premises. They looked at Garda CCTV. They looked at transport, cr- crucially, in and out of Tullamore because they didn't know where the killer was at that stage. So they were looking at buses. They were looking at trains. Of course, they didn't turn up anything there because we now know Joseph Pushka took lifts or whatever. But... Um, um, you know, they really extensively trawled through the CCTV. And just as Tony Hunt, when he was um, dismissing the defence contention that it shouldn't be used, he said, I consider the CCTV vital evidence. And he said, Anne-Marie Kelly's evidence was so relevant to whether the crime was committed by the accused. Do you remember, she was a school teacher that we see Joseph Pushka following on the day he murdered 
murdered Ashling. He said that the CCTV was really crucial to the to looking at the state of mind of the accused. Well, indeed, because um, you know it, it went to premeditation. Of course, it went to the fact that he was stalking women that day in Tullamore with a knife in his pocket. You know, the CCTV shows clearly his hand going to his pocket while he's following women in Tullamore. And that was a vital part of this case. So had that been thrown out because of this invasion of Joseph Pushka's privacy, it would have put a very different complexion on this trial. And in fact, that's why yesterday, Nicola, we made a point really of talking about what had become his rights in this trial. This trial didn't focus on not just on the fact that he denied the charge, but on his rights, his rights to privacy, as in the CCTV picking him up, his rights to being interviewed when he was in hospital. And of course, we know now that wasn't an interview. He freely made that confession to the detectives and they hadn't started to interview him. But there's an awful lot of argument around whether his rights were breached around that confession being told to them. Yeah, that's right. And something else that the defence objected to was that after Joseph Pushka made that confession where he said, memorably, he said, I did it, I murdered, I am the murderer. The guardy then decided to place a guard, a policeman, outside his hospital room. And that was something that Michael Bowman said shouldn't have happened and infringed his client's rights. And he argued very strongly about that. But Justice Tony Hunt threw that out as well. Michael Bowman also said that uh, he objected to the use of handcuffs on Pushka as he left St. James's Hospital on the 18th of January to be taken to Tullamore Garden station to be formally interviewed. But just as Tony Hunt said that the handcuffs were entirely justified, he said the guards were dealing with someone who, on the face of it, had admitted to a violent, disturbing crime and they couldn't make any presumptions about their safety or his safety. And he said they did absolutely nothing wrong. Yeah, I mean, an awful lot, as we said, of this trial has been about Joseph Pushka's rights And as we made the point yesterday, and as many, many have made the point and will continue to make the point, what about the rights of Ashlyn Murphy that day to walk along the canal? And after this break, we'll come back and we'll talk about the savagery of this crime. Have you ever felt like escaping to your own desert island? Jane Gaskin did exactly that, trading in the family home to begin a new life in the tropics. But she soon discovers that paradise has its secrets. I'm Alice Levine, and this is The Price of Paradise, the island dream that ends in kidnap, corruption and murder. Wish you were here? Follow The Price of Paradise now, wherever you listen to podcasts. Life is full of what-ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome. Like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out-of-pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what-ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. 
So, Nicola, we outlined yesterday um, a lot about the savagery of this crime, the premeditation, the fact that he had a knife in his pocket. He was stalking women that day. He was going to kill someone that day. And a lot of people have been in touch with us, haven't they, about what the possible motive would be in this case, because there's no evidence there was a financial motive. There's no evidence that there was a sexual motive. Obviously, the defence was not that he did it, but that he was disturbed in his mind or anything. It was that he hadn't done it. So there's been no real talk of motive up to now, has there? No, none at all. And, you know, one family friend said to me yesterday, after the verdict, we know the how and we know the where, but we still don't know why. Why did he do this? You know, it's an unusual crime, I suppose, in a way, because it was committed by a man with no previous convictions at all, apart from a conviction in his native Slovakia for underage sex. That was a consensual sex. But still, he was given the Probation Act when he was just 15 years old. But apart from that, nothing, no previous record at all. So his motive remains unknown. And I suspect only he knows that. Yeah, I mean, I was really pleased earlier to be able to chat to Dr. Kira Staunton. Now, she is from University College in Cork. She's a doctor of psychology, a forensic psychology. And she managed to spare a few minutes earlier on to chat to me about what she thinks about the case and what his possible motivations might be. You've been watching this case. What, what have you thought about what you've seen in this trial so far and, and how it links your your expertise? Well, when the murder, um, when Ashley's murder happened in January 2022, it was kind of on foot of the murder of Sarah Everard the year before, you know. So that had really kind of propelled, again, this you know, violence against women into the spotlight. Um, sadly, violence against women is always there, but it tends to be hidden behind closed doors because it happens between people who know each other. So it doesn't necessarily generate the same media attention as the case that Sarah Everard did. And then not long afterwards, we had that uh, murder of Ashley Murphy here. So that really, I think, catapulted it onto the main um, stage because here we had another example of a seemingly random, senseless, violent act in broad daylight. A young, beautiful girl going about her day-to-day activity, something we can all do, we can all relate to, should be able to do without feeling fear. And yet... As women, we know this taps into this unconscious, consistent fear that we all live our lives with. It's ever present. It's omnipresent. And those two cases, I think, really brought that to the fore. And it's been useful in that way in terms of carrying on that conversation and adding to the debate around gender based violence. It would seem to me, I don't know, we're not aware of previous convictions. We're not aware of other um, issues that have happened in this man's life that have prompted this. But would it would that have been the first time he'd have just got on a bike and decided to put a knife in his pocket and go and find a woman to attack? Highly unlikely, I would say. So it's highly unlikely that he got up that specific morning and decided that specific day that this was how the day was going to unfold for him. So for me, certainly those kind of murderous thoughts or homicidal ideations would have been present. So we know from homicides that while most homicides appear spontaneous and random or in the moment, 
There are others which are premeditated. Um, and all the behaviours around this specific case that came out in court and on that day would indicate to me that there was certainly a level of premeditation. So while he may not have intended to go out and kill somebody, he certainly had ideas or thoughts or fantasies even around harm. And that's borne out through those behaviours. So cycling around. So when you observe people based on their behaviours alone, this is what I teach my students, you're missing a trick because you don't know what that person is thinking or what they are feeling. So to all intents and purposes, CCTV footage might just show a guy cycling around on his bike, whereas I'd be asking, what is he thinking? What is he looking for? What is going through his head as he is cycling? And then the evidence that we see by those two other women was he did not have good intentions. So in a split second, in a split second, he had his opportunity, but he had been looking for that opportunity. That's the difference. One of the things that some people have been asking during this trial and and subsequently as well um, is just why, you know, um, there's no, there doesn't appear to be a sexual motive. There doesn't appear to be a financial motive. He didn't know Ashlyn. So people have questioned the motive. Now, you mentioned earlier on about sort of the motive in itself could be just the violence, the power, the knife. Could you walk us through that a little bit? Certainly, yeah. I mean, people are always keen to understand motive as if that gives us some deeper understanding as to why the individual has taken the life of somebody else. Um, There is always a motive, but that motive is usually hidden to the rest of us. Only Joseph Puska will really be able to articulate what that motive was. He may not fully understand it himself. What I can say is that even though there was no um, evidence of a sexual assault, that doesn't mean that there was a sexual component to the crime. Um, the, the use of the knife, the level of violence perpetrated, it's that level of control, which have, could have been a sadistic impulse on his behalf which is arousing to somebody who has a sadistic sexual impulsive nature to their character. Um, The use of the knife, certainly, there could be elements of pathology there in terms of a paraphilic interest in pickerism. Pickerism is the sexual gratification through the pinpointing or the stabbing of the flesh. So these things are sexually gratifying to individuals. So again, while there may be no evidence of a sexual assault, everything around that crime um, indicates to me a level of control and power that was unnecessary if the motive was just to kill. So it's probably those moments leading up to, during, and the moments after could have been potentially highly arousing to him, and maybe not in a sexual way, but in an emotional way. Gosh, and just as a final point, Kira, um, what do you make of the defence? Well, I wasn't in the court, so I didn't hear the full arguments made by the defence. I have to say I was slightly surprised and I thought that they would introduce the mental health element. Mm. There were strands of it. It would be a defence that is usually put forward in cases like this, that the person in the moment was acting out of control and that there may have been elements of delirium or a psychosis. Mm. Um, we do see violent crimes committed by individuals who suffer with mental health conditions. Um, and in, in many cases, that is the right judgment to be made from a legal perspective. And such individuals um, require um, treatment and support and help. However, I'm very keen to always extrapolate 
this link between mental ill health and violence because it isn't straightforward. It can be very complex. And the reason for the complexity is that mental ill health in and of itself is not a risk factor for violence. But none of that was used by the defence. Um, there was no kind of psychiatric reports, as far as I'm aware, put forward. Well, no, of course, because because his defence was, I didn't do it. Yeah, just pure denial, which contradicted his earlier statements. And from a defence perspective, it might have been a logical defence argument to make that mm. he was delirious. He didn't fully understand the nature of the questioning at the time. He was a vulnerable individual due to a mental health issue. These are the kinds of arguments that we see put forward. Um, so that is a curious aspect about this particular trial. Um, I was sure that the defence would go down that route, even to reduce the charge to one of manslaughter rather than um, first degree murder. To have such a flimsy defence, and it, and it was, it was flimsy at best, and to put this family through what he put them through, psychologically... What does that do to them? It's absolutely devastating. It really and truly is to have to sit and listen and listen to the level of violence that was perpetrated on that young girl. That family, they never get over this. This is a highly traumatic event. They would be at risk of themselves suffering psychological consequences due to this crime and having been through the court process. And we don't do enough to support the families of victims of crime. Mm. I mean, that is the reality. We need to really put in place support services for individuals like the Murphy family that they can avail of. Joseph Pusco will avail of everything um, within the prison system. He'll be fed, he'll be watered, he'll have entitlements, he could be educated. Families of victims are left not only bereft in their loss, but having to move forward in a life that is no longer the life that they ever expected. And that is deeply psychologically traumatising. Thank you so much, uh, Dr. Kira Staunton from University College Cork. That was really, really interesting. Thanks again. You're very welcome. No problem. Yeah, so that was Dr. Staunton there. And obviously we do know, don't we? You, you mentioned earlier, Nicola, he doesn't have previous convictions really to speak of, certainly not violent convictions like this one. Obviously her point there in that interview that she did with me earlier on was that it's unlikely in her view that he woke up on the 12th of January last year and went about this for the first time. We're not saying obviously there's no evidence that he has acted before, but were there other days when he was riding round Tullamore on a bike with a knife in his pocket? Yeah, I think undoubtedly there were, Caroline and Garda sources have told me that he was uh, known to cycle around Tullamore. He visited um, a casino there, a gaming um, arcade um, on occasion, and he was not working. He was unemployed. He said he had slipped a disc in his back. So he was out and about mooching around or aimlessly meandering, as Amory Lawler for the prosecution put it. So I I think there's no doubt that the, he had been doing this before and this was the day that that he struck. Yeah, he had the opportunity because obviously Ashlyn was on that canal on her own in that moment and, and that's when he he attacked. We should end today with just a bit more about what we were aware in the um, during the trial and we made reference to it actually in the podcast that he appeared one day without his usual bobble in his head but he also had no shoelaces that day and we know a bit more about that now, don't we? 
We do, yeah. So last Wednesday week, court convened as normal and Justice Tony Hunt came into court and took up his place on the bench and Michael Bowman jumped to his feet and said, I'm sorry, the defendant won't be here today. And this didn't go down well with the judge at all. And he said, what do you mean he won't be here? And he said, he's sick. There's a sick note from Clover Hill Prison where he was being held on remand. It transpired that what in actual fact happened was that Pushka was to give evidence that day and the night before he attempted to harm himself police source told me that he took some medical gauze and put it around his neck now prison officers moved quickly to stop him and there was no serious harm caused uh, to himself by himself but from then on he wasn't allowed to tie his hair back he wasn't allowed the shoelaces and two prison guards were put right up beside the dock where he sat with his translator to watch him at all times. And just finally, after the verdict yesterday, Nicola, you did manage a few words with his family, didn't you? Yeah, I did. His family came every day to the trial, just as the Murphy family did. And his mother and father, his wife, his cousins, his two brothers, about 12 members in all could be seen there on most days. And I spoke with them after the verdict. I spoke with the women. Uh, His wife was too upset to speak with me. She was doubled over crying. But his cousin told me that Joseph Pushka was a good man, he was a good husband and he was a good father. And I asked her, do you think he killed Ashley Murphy? And she said no. But she didn't look me in the eye when she said it. She looked at the ground. So that's it for today. We're back next week with more on this case ahead of the sentencing of Joseph Pushka, which takes place next Friday. See you then. <laughs>